Lydia. This is Carla. And you are listening to No Librarians Allowed. Welcome to our podcast and thank you for joining us. We've had a lot of guests recently, but before we take a little break for the summer, uh, Carla and I are joined only by Nina. <laughs> Forcibly. <laughs> to talk about some recent developments in our own working lives and in the professional in general. I guess what's been on my mind this week has been the intersection of very tangible and practical and material implications of work, especially working, you know, me being kind of a digital librarian and working more in both strategic and long-term projects and also at times working very immaterial processes, right? Even doing reference for Overdrive, for example, or how to support ebook borrowing can be very ephemeral and very <laughs> unreal. Mm -hmm. Most of my interactions tend to be over email, both with my own colleagues, but even with community members. I don't tend to talk on the phone. And so this week, by turn of luck and not and careful planning <laughs> not at all planning things just kind of happened this way two projects came online if you will came into being at the same time so i would not really pick that strategy again but that's what happened so um, this week, we rolled out two very tangible and real and kind of new projects that involved real people. So, uh, so one was uh, very children-oriented. We installed an augmented reality sandbox. I'm very happy that it's finally here. My fear was there's been so many installations, largely in museums of these types of technologies that combine both like, you know, the physical, mm -hmm. like real sand <laughs> with, with digital projection and kind of software that powers it. But most examples I've seen have been very basic. It's been you know, oh, like yeah. topography, right? So it's just... Yeah. Are there any other than topography? I was trying to describe it to someone last week and I could only think of topography examples. No. And, and I think be largely because the original software was developed by researchers in University of California, Davis, more for, I think, geography reasons, right? You're right. So because the software is open source and free and easily distributed, everyone just kind of ran it. But what's cool is we found an example of a company who I think what, what they did is they took the open source code, but then they applied it to these like mini programs or worlds. And so now we have installed a sandbox with many like modes. So there's some of the favorites have been Safari where animals walk around what? and kids. Well, I guess anyone, but it tends <laughs> to be kids can dig, you know, like deeper little troughs and then the ocean will fill in. What I was showing my colleagues too is how you can adjust like the levels of dry land for example so in safari you could have much more sand or kind of land or you can increase the the water levels mm -hmm. and so as they make mountains uh, more like vegetation grows and you know there's like little lions kids can, could even pick up little crabs in their hands pile of sand and there's like a little crab in their palm Another popular one has been volcanoes. So there, you know, with volcanoes, there's not a lot of variety. Like you need to make a big hill, right? <laughs> Do you need a lot of variety? <laughs> no, and that's the thing, right? Me being an adult, I'm like, oh, they'll get bored immediately. But kids love it. Yeah. They, they could do that every day. So I've seen kids, yeah, they build this big hill. They make kind of a hole in the middle. And with these settings, again, props to the company who did this. Uh, you can, I think you can increase the speed at which the volcano erupts so it goes a little bit faster because right? mm -hmm. you want to give them clues like, hey, it's going to happen. And then digitally or virtually this like red lava spurs and like flows down the sand. But because it's all projection, like it's amazing how immersive it is. Like mm -hmm. you're really into it. So that's one project. So yeah, with this one, the modes are 
as I mentioned, safari, volcano, there's ocean, so that's more ocean creatures, but there is still a bit of beach and then, you know, there's little crabs and I love the little detail of like a campfire burning on the, on the sand. Some dude playing acoustic guitar that's badly. Right. <laughs> they factored that in. They also have this really cool one, you know, some are a little more violent, but they're like ogres walking around these hills and they have holes and in your settings you can increase the number of holes and then they have this purple like spinny uh, sort of pop-up and then the monster or the ogre comes out of the hole it's very lord of the rings but <laughs> for kids and how you you know kill them or sort of have an interaction with the program is you can cover the projector with your palm and throw a shadow eff effectively and then these beautiful little butterflies scatter maybe we'll link a little video that i made of this to it the podcast because like it's amazing how just yeah like the video is so engaging just sort of yeah so trippy mm -hmm. You, you endlessly try to catch these or transform the ogres into butterflies. So colors look good. There's variety. It's more than just topography. And it's very kid-oriented, right? They know kids love lions. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you give them more of that? <laughs> so props to them. So that's been installed and kind of rolled out. And another project has been uh, installing a fairly large, physically big, multi-touch table i've been told by my colleagues that they've seen these types of technologies i guess in you know museum science centers tend to have them so yeah libraries maybe i haven't seen too many in my research in the last couple of years but they are around right and i think they are made for the public especially in museums where you kind of put one application on it and it runs all day every day mm -hmm. so so those two projects are very real. Either the movers deliver the table or they don't. <laughs> the programs run or they don't. Mm -hmm. The sand, the sand, you know. The sand is there or it's not there. It falls out and it needs to be cleaned, <laughs> which is what's happening. But also, you know, we spent a fair amount of time like configuring and making sure that the sensor knows the edges of the box. It's sized really well to like little users, to, to the height of a child. So it signals to them that it's for them. And this week, I think has, as stressful as it is to sort of make sure that everything goes smoothly and you know, no one drops 250 pounds of expensive equipment on their feet <laughs> or things don't get stuck or you know, patrons don't get into the settings of Windows. It's been very rewarding to see a project that was literally an idea, that was literally a proposal to a director to say, I think this is in line with what we're pursuing and it will have an impact on our patrons. And more than I think, like we have evidence that other organizations have done it and it's exciting and it supports learning. So let's experiment and source this thing then buying the, the thing, putting it together physically with screws and hammers, and then putting it out and seeing real kids for whom it, this, this thing is designed come and use it and get so excited that they like want to climb into it and live in it. <laughs> it's been the most rewarding kind of process to have that from start to finish. And what's good, or I guess what's what's interesting for me, because I tend to work with adults the most, all my colleagues are adults, obviously, um, not to expect any kind of kudos or like feedback from a six-year-old, but the only feedback I need is the excitement on their faces, them seeing and figuring things out that I didn't even know were in the program, and wanting to return again and again. So that has been uh, an interesting journey. <laughs> and it makes me think of, we've touched on sort of the tangible and the, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, I feel like I'm going a lot, but that has been in many ways the culmination in real, in, in real experience of some of the themes that me and you have discussed, right, in, in our podcast about how libraries are places where things are real books sit on the shelf, 
programs happen, computer terminals, there's only so many of them, right, mm -hmm. in a space. And same with this. There's only so many children that can fit around a sandbox or only so many adults that can go around the table. But they get to experience it, and they're real people who will walk away with some impression. And if I don't do a good job or if I do a good job, it has some sort of impact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... It's been a good connection. I think it's important for digital services to see sort of the end result, if you will. So. How long has it been, like from the initial kind of proposal, are you thinking about it, to actually implementing it? Yeah, that's a good question. Certainly with the sandbox, at least a year. Yeah. Uh, with the touch table, I started talking about it in November. I definitely I was reading my proposal. I started drafting it in January, and here we are, you know, already July. So it's also important to re reflect how all of this takes time, right? Mm -hmm. So sourcing materials takes time and, you know, shipping and then configuring. So it's not so long, it's not 20 year <laughs> kind of journey, <laughs> but it's n not as, I feel like ordering books is so much quicker, right? I mean, obviously they need to get published, but yeah, there's always time involved and there's always risks. There's a lot we didn't know and how would we know until they got there, right? So I, what I also appreciate, I think, with these new technologies, they're a little bit weird and a little bit unusual. But for my own colleagues to be excited and to learn new things, I could see for some of them there was hesitation or just uncertainty of like, how do you support this? What's the software? What does it do? What the interface is the sand? What are you talking about? You you connect to the computer, and like it's per, you can see the Windows desktop on the white surface of the sand. But one pleasure of working in a learning organization is that you have opportunities to learn every day, and I know that's why I get up every day. Is like there'll be something new to learn. So to see my colleagues share that value has been very rewarding as well. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of questions to ask. You're very good at questions. I know, but I'm not very good at it today. No, no, well, I was going to ask about like different, um, who has surprised you in terms of your colleagues, like involving colleagues in different areas. Mm -hmm. So the tech departments are obviously really heavily involved. How has it been working with like branches or... Yeah, what's been surprising is how much IT-ness I have had to do and how I've beefed up my own, like, system setting skills and I learned, like, what the heck BIOS are, right? Like, how to turn on computers automatically and make things shut down automatically. Like, it seems logical, but I would argue nobody taught us that in library school. I've also had colleagues say, your job is so different and I don't really know <laughs> what you're talking about but it sounds interesting and even that that act of well we talk so much about automation in contemporary life and like even on this podcast we've talked about algorithms and uh, automation but like I automated a few processes and to see that me and you know I didn't program it from scratch but I use tools that are part of windows that like in theory most of us have access to like, r real people did this, right? We're not magicians. We turned on a setting in Windows, and we scheduled it, and we tested it. So that has been surprising to see that intersection. Like, what is librarianship? Is it cutting, you know, plex oh, sorry, it's not plexiglass, cutting, you know, PVC and rubber trip protectors? Yes, it is. It's also learning how the computer works and the fact that like we're part of larger processes in terms of updates and all of these like routine things that I think are invisible to us, right? Because mm -hmm. IT takes care of them mm -hmm. and we as librarians come in and we just work with users, but like that's also part of user experience, right? To make sure that it's on and less staff time is taken to do this every day. What's also been surprising is I want to simplify you know, the addition of this new thing to a branch as much as possible because I realized that here I am coming in and sort of adding it on. They didn't necessarily ask for it. They 
agreed and they're on board and but also they have to be the ones to answer questions and if should anything go wrong they are in many ways kind of the face of that service so I, so I want to simplify it but I do make assumptions about like the complexity of say control escape and bringing up the taskbar that some staff may not know but what surprised me is while I'm away, you know, centrally doing all the other things that I'm doing, and this tool is in the in the real space with real people, that staff read the documentation I provided. They take some risks, they figure it out, and they rely on each other because, you know, one branch told me, yeah, we have kind of a gaming colleague or someone who's into gaming, and they probably work with, you know, Windows settings, or I don't know, they, they just use computers maybe more than other staff. And it's not to say, like, staff don't use computers. Like, they're all very literate, trained people. Like, we mm -hmm. train them. That's the whole <laughs> point, right? But I made these assumptions that they'd be overwhelmed, and they'd be stuck, and they'd be calling IT for help. But they relied on each other, and they figured it out. And that's been a good, humbling reminder that they don't necessarily need me and I don't want them to need me every moment. That's mm -hmm. also part of that literacy, like for them to take risks and yeah, maybe feel uncomfortable, but they'll figure it out. That's good for all of us. So it's good like, yeah, it's working as it should. So yeah. <laughs> so and I guess, should we? Well, I'm trying to think of a question to ask you a little bit more about the like materiality of it and right. what that has meant, unless you feel like you've talked about that. Uh, I yeah. think I'm nervous to talk about the next part, which is also okay. why I'm not like jumping in with many okay. questions. <laughs> okay, I just don't want to be the one like. No, no, that's good. That uh, was very good and interesting. Materiality, yeah. Obviously, I never thought I'd be working with silica free sand and PVC tiles as a digital librarian. I have had to use a mallet and a box cutter a lot. But the materiality to what I think, when the augmented reality sandbox was kind of an idea or a proposal, it was easy for me to talk about the intersection of the tangible with the virtual. But until I saw it in real life and saw how good, you know, the colors and the programs were and how truly absorbing it was, it felt good when things clicked and actually aligned with what we talked about, right? So the vision and the reality came much closer together than maybe in some other projects. So here, obviously, like, it, it needs real material, it needs real sand, but also there's something like we've talked about this on previous episodes with uh, children's toys in the 21st century. Many of them have like a iOS app where they use the camera on your iPad to have like a little creature mm -hmm. walk around, say the Jenga blocks that you assemble, right? So they add that layer. And so that combination is really interesting. But here with the sandbox, I, I really saw how absorbing it is and how it really is at the level of the child, right? So it speaks to their sensibility of how they interact with the world, which is through touch and sound, and there's like a bit of sound, and color, and with each other, right? So they do play socially. So it feels like it hits all those spots, and it, it's like a right match, right? It's a good meeting of the needs for children's play and exploration in a fun way, but it's still digital. It's, mm -hmm. it's still teaching them that... Like there's a process you can maybe experiment because we didn't know if the volcano would erupt until we made it bigger or the hole. Like, like it's not so formal instruction, me standing and talking at them. Mm -hmm. It's them figuring it out. So in that way, that materiality was a good reminder of what learning is about underneath their software, right? It's powered by these very immaterial things that kids don't think about. And I would argue even, I don't know, adults don't think about with the table, too, its size reminds me how we're so used to the desktop environment kind of user, um, user interface, right? So, like, in most programs, the exit button is on the right. It's a big X. There's some sort of bar below. The text is actually quite small. We're used to it, but we don't realize how menus are always kind of around the edge. And so with this touch table, it's a physical thing. You have to stand in front of it. And I will not stand there f like for an hour. So the interaction time I've, I've observed very briefly because these projects are still very new 
people actually don't hang around that long, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's very short. And so how do you grab their attention? And the if we're running programs that were designed for a basic computer on this experience that's like almost like a physical space installation, you suddenly realize how tired your arms get closing. The fact that we had to go around, you know, from one side to another to touch different buttons on it. That's silly, right? To have to do that much work for a basic program. So again, you think, well, geez, it's all virtual. It's, it's just software. But here it's experienced with other people in front of other people. So mm -hmm. I think there's that embarrassment factor too. So I, I'm also pleased with the touch table that like all the research that I've done and all the conversations I've had, here they are in front of me. And everything that's been said about these types of services is true. And it feels good that like none of it is magic or lies. Here it is. <laughs> so let's apply that. And, and it shows how hard it is to do good design. <laughs> we're not designers, we're librarians, right? But it, it's hard to do a good job so that the user doesn't even think about that mm -hmm. service. So mm -hmm. That's a very long answer, but the two are in many ways are different, and yet they bring these threads back. What do we do? <laughs> well, I don't know, just probably claps or maybe. They probably laughed. So thinking of hmm. bringing threads back, the policy has been updated on June 26, 2018. But there's been s still some discussions about the recent, I guess, update or to the interpretation of the Library Bill of Rights specifically for meeting room policy mm -hmm. uh, by the American Library Association. I know this isn't really like a tech topic. I mean, anything can kind of be turned into a tech topic, but this has really been the thing that's been on my mind as a librarian for mm -hmm. the last two some weeks when people kind of started to make a fuss about it on Twitter and, you know, just thinking about social media spreading the word, like I found out about this change to the meeting room policy via Twitter. Right. That's how I got my information about what ALA was doing. And I don't know that I would have ever seen it if I wasn't on social media following other people who then mentioned it. So I agree. that was kind of an interesting thing for me and to, to really get a lot of the discussion and concern, seeing it play out online and less so in my own kind of day-to-day -day library experience. Right. So <laughs> like, I don't think I really had a conversation about it with anybody. I think I like texted you a yes. thing about it. And I don't know that I've actually like spoken of these things, but I just like, it's the thing that's on my mind and I, I just wanted to kind of use the opportunity to talk about it a little bit with my very smart friend, Lydia. And just kind of what I've been thinking about. And frankly, like one of the big things was how scared I am right now mm. to be bringing it up. It feels nerve wracking because I'm a little bit distracted about actually talking about something that I know is so polarizing. Mm. And intellectual freedom has been talked about in such a fundamental way about libraries and for me was very important at a certain point in my career. Even before I, you know, became an official librarian, like I've worked in libraries since I was 16. So to me, that's always been really an important value that I identified with and understood and have even defended to people. And I guess it's just like, you know, I feel like times change and it's important to continue to talk about it and rethink our assumptions and rethink our values. And I feel really like scared to do that because it feels so powerful and it, it's the system, it's the organization, it's the profession that is saying this is the thing that we stand behind and that we're, we believe in. And myself and some other people are questioning that and are saying like, I don't know, you know? And so I feel some pressure to have a very articulate statement or point of view. Um, and I really do admire the people who have been able to put together very 
well-written, very succinct, very smart responses through their blogs or on, you know, how, however they're communicating online, because I feel so hesitant to do that. And even to do anything more than like retweeting in my yeah. own yeah. feed, because I worry about getting it wrong. And I, I feel like in order to come up against some of the people who are kind of in charge of this, who are, who are representing the other side, I need to bring a very smart articulate a game which a lot of them would have these are professors these are i don't really know who's in charge of ala in this area like but i'm assuming they're people who have spent their time fighting for and articulating this and they 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 know how to do it they know how to phrase it in such a way they they've been doing this advocacy for a long time and so that's front of mind for them and it's less so for me so I feel very much like I'm kind of just like stumbling through and raising questions and like half-formed ideas, but I've been trying to tell myself a little bit more like, so what? You know, like I don't have a beautiful speech prepared and I don't have, you know, a really nice article written and maybe if I were to have a conversation with one of these people, I would feel like I would totally understand their side and I would be feeling whatever and they would win and I don't know. but. It's something that I've kind of been feeling for a couple of months when I attended a, they called it a debate, but it wasn't really a debate. It was like a discussion about intellectual freedom and uh, freedom of speech on campuses and in academic libraries at um, the OLA, Ontario Library Association conference in January. And it was kind of the same thing. Like the speakers at that event were very, all I can say now is traditional. And a lot of the audience was too, but at the end, there were there were individuals who stood up in the audience and questioned it and asked for explanations on certain things and asked them to justify their position in certain areas and in certain ways. And so I am seeing more questioning of it. Coming from the profession. Yeah, coming from within the yeah. profession itself. I just kind of wanted to talk about some of the things that I've been thinking about and also talking a little bit about that fear and pressure that I feel. Yeah, that's important, and I, I really appreciate you being so open about it. I would also say, you know, you say, oh, half-formed questions and just more things arising. I wonder if that's more than most of our colleagues or the librarians across North America. I, how many people would have seen it? I guess we do have Twitter now, so that's one way to to be visible and to mm -hmm. engage. But could have easily fallen by the wayside or just received as much attention. But I, I think our running joke here is that we're both very conscientious and reflective people, which is why we have these opportunities to think through things. <laughs> so we feel like if it's not absolutely eloquent and informed, how can it compare? Which is also silly because that's why we wanted a podcast in the yeah, first place. Because yeah. we're like, eh, academic, we don't want this journal. Yeah. We want just to have conversations about things. So... I am doing what I said I would do okay, good. <laughs> and no, just have I, conversations about I, things. I really appreciate you yeah, bringing that up and being so transparent about it. Many of you probably know that, or if you don't know, you can follow on Twitter. You can take a look at, there was an article in um, American Libraries. Magazine? Yeah, I think so, or on their website or something. We'll find some links to it just about kind of the change and the backlash. So... Basically, they reworded parts of the meeting room policy, which now explicitly includes the expression hate groups, so libraries. I'm not going to kind of say exactly what they've said, but I will give my interpretation, which is libraries welcome all groups of people for meeting rooms, for booking a meeting room, for holding um, a public uh, or private event at the meeting room, regardless of their stance, and that includes hate groups, specifically is the word that they mentioned. So religious groups, sports groups, whatever, and hate groups. And that's really where a lot of people have questioned them. I guess there was some concern about the process and how exactly that, that phrasing got, in some people's minds, kind of snuck into the final version of this that people didn't realize when they voted on. I don't really know much about that, but that is a concern. But I mean, for me, it, it is more centered around that, making that very explicit. And so this kind of also comes from the place like this is an, an American thing, a different legal environment. And so, yeah, I'm in Canada. I'm not necessarily, am I bound to this policy? Like that's 
kind of debatable, but we do have our own version of the intellectual freedom and all kinds of those policies um, and values for the Canadian context. Will it be influenced by this? I don't know, but my sense is the interpretation is the same. They say the same thing. Everybody welcome. And right. for, I mean, more Canadian context, last year there was two incidents at Toronto Public Library mm -hmm. where um, a neo-Nazi group wanted to first book a meeting room for a memorial service for a lawyer who had represented them. I'm sure everybody knows this now. And there was a big kerfuffle around it, and right. they ended up going ahead. However, later on, they actually denied the group booking for a different reason. They wanted to have just like a meeting of their own, not a memorial. And they were denied. And they actually ended up, um, I, I think the article I was reading was saying that the board made changes to the policy. And it's actually not how they would proceed in the future. Okay. So it's an interesting thing because that example has also really been brought up a as lot. like... For sure. You know, um, representative of intellectual freedom and free speech in Canada. That's right. And then actually we didn't hear as much, I feel, about the next steps for it and what the library's stance on it is now. All of that to say, I saw this on Twitter, I went and reread the policy, and I felt sick to my stomach. Mm. So here are the things that I've been thinking about. This idea of ahistoricism. Right. I feel like my education as a librarian is shockingly poor. I don't feel that I ever learned the history of the concept of intellectual freedom in libraries in North America. Hmm. So I was trying to do a bit of digging and be like, well, okay, this came from somewhere. This was from a particular moment in history. This got enacted. I remain very unclear about what that is. So if people out there can please give me some stuff or would like to come on and talk a little bit more about it, that would be very much appreciated. <laughs> but in my mind, any system comes from a place. Any system is only run by people. There is nothing that is outside of us. We are the things. So an argument that is made a lot is like, okay, well, in the past, some things have been called hate groups that aren't hate groups. And some things weren't called hate groups that should have been called hate groups. And therefore, we need to just blanket open it up to everyone in case we get it wrong in the future. Or because there is that discrepancy. And it's this weirdly ahistorical response looking backwards, but then also this really strange, like slippery slope kind of fallacy going into the future. So looking back, are there not things that link together those groups that may have been called hate groups at some time, but are not now. So an example that's often given is like Martin Luther King supporters, often called a hate group, or Black Lives Matter now. Some people call it a hate group. Nazis then, they were the ruling party. That's just taking a stance that we can't actually learn from history, and that there's not something that we can hang our hats on behind those groups in order to distinguish them. So it's this weird kind of like blind neutrality looking back over history. The only thing I can think to say is like, if we're saying that we're worried that someday Nazis are going to be right, I don't want to be right. You know, yeah. like, and so in the past, yes, Nazis were in charge in some places, or yes, some people like the establishment was concerned about Martin Luther King and his views and his actions and we're actively trying to oppress them. Does that mean that we let everything go, or does it mean that we take a look at what Martin Luther King's values were and what he was fighting for and support those? And then take a look at what the Nazis were fighting for and say, yeah, we're not into those. Right. Some of it is also, I've heard examples before too of like um, LGBTQ literature or like erotica in some cases or assembly, all of those things. Looking back, or even at the time, there were people who recognized that that was wrong yeah. to, to have those laws against, you know, basically being homosexual, right. against assembly, all of those things. Why would I continue to say or think that because some people are saying it, I have to continue to support that view? Can I not also then recognize and link between LGBTQ activism and the activism of someone like Martin Luther King, who was trying to say, if I may paraphrase wildly, People should be equal, people should be supported. And so is that not a value that the libraries could say we're supporting rather than saying we're supporting 
everyone's saying X, Y, and Z, and it's shifting so we can't know because popular opinion changes and what's legal changes and blah, blah, blah. Then actually just like stick to some guns and identify that those are values that we're going to stand behind instead. So regardless of what the establishment says about LGBTQ rights or segregation or whatever, we're going to stand for LGBTQ right. rights and against segregation and for minorities and because we're smart enough to learn from those particular instances and also to challenge authority in those cases where maybe the authority is saying not those things. It just seems kind of dumb. Like that's the like like not being smart and judicious enough to make that distinction between groups and really privileging the right of someone else to make to have those groups where I can't support those values. And I mean, the other thing that I'm thinking about in this particular era, people can meet online. You know, there are many ways that people can get together and share information, either in person or not in person. There are many speakers who can have a platform on YouTube Absolutely. or elsewhere, though, again, like YouTube may have policies where they're going to take down particular topics. Right. If we ignore the past and what we've learned from it, but also ignore that there have always been people fighting against oppression and there have always been people taking a stand regardless of what we like to say what's unpopular mm -hmm. or like distasteful That's at the right. time. Why can we not make those conscious decisions to always stand for human rights, for inclusion, for diversity, for equity? Yep. You know, not equality. We're talking about equity. And so recognizing that certain people have fewer rights, have a different societal standings for X, Y, and Z reasons, and taking active measures to try and correct those, rather than just painting it with an equality brush and saying, mm, everybody the same, because how can we know? Like some people, it changes. What are we going to do? Uh, we can't say. It seems like it's, an, it's a weird argument to make when you could be making the argument that you stand by certain particular sure. values. And then we do try and say that. So then we try and say, like, we're into equality and diversity and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, one of the responses back from the head of that particular department or organization or whatever in ALA was like, yeah, we have to continue to work on balancing these two. And I'm at a point where I'm kind of like, I don't know that you can. I don't know that you can have one and the other. Because what I feel like we're doing is although we're trying to say both with our profession and with customers we are so pro-diversity and we want to change you know our demographics and our makeup and we want to serve all groups right. and make everyone feel welcome when right now members of those groups are telling us we can't feel safe in our jobs or members of the public in your spaces if there are let's just say hate groups, because that's the language that's used here, meeting in your library and having you endorse that. So why are we suddenly not willing to hear and believe the people of color or the LGBTQ staff or people with disabilities who are telling us as a profession, when there are hate groups in the library, I am feeling unsafe and that is legit. We've talked about kind of physical violence, right? Yeah. And whether it's a personal thing, like one one to one, if I make a threat against someone. Mm -hmm. So in our customer behavior policies, let's say like white supremacist dude comes up to someone and says like, don't even want to think of what they're saying off the top of their so head. So makes a threat sure, or makes a, a threat. physical gesture or... Yeah, we would suspend that person right. from the library because of our behavioral codes of right. conduct. That is a threat of violence. In this case, that's a verbal threat or a verbal assault, right? right. So we're willing to say that in this case when it's a one-to-one -one direct person-to-person. -person. But we're unwilling to admit that there's any harm that's done by systemic violence right. or by the presence of a hate group or by the words of that particular hate group, their publications, their articles, a parade. It's just an example of us not listening to the particular groups of people who are actually affected by those things, who are saying, you know what? It is violence and it is hard. And 
that is legit impact and damage that's happening to me. And while, yeah, the law may say differently in the U.S., is that the only thing that we have kind of to follow? And frankly, like you mentioned that there's another kind of, there's another law that can be... I saw this one argument made that I'm surprised that within the American context, which does protect free speech, including hate speech, much more than in Canada, that a legal argument has not been proposed for, uh, I think it's called accommodation. So essentially for minority groups to assert their legal right for accommodations to be made for respect, dignity, and safety, which is that balance between the majority and the minority. And I guess, yeah, these laws exist in the U.S. where it's only a matter of time before someone makes a litigation, essentially asserts that their own rights to be protected and balanced against this. So that's much more of a smaller, I guess, argument or component. It may not work in Canada, but I have tweeted about this, and it's always I feel like so pretentious whenever I bring this up, but... <laughs> The original quote is in French, so everything French always seems more pretentious when Whatever. you quote it in the yeah, but original we're also language. In Canada, so should know French. Okay, the way. that's good. So we're allowed. But I really like the the quote from Annie Arnaud's The Happening, and it's about her abortion, essentially, in like, I don't know, the 60s. But in it, she, she has this quote about, we always judged ourselves in relation to the law, we never judged the law. And I realize that's easy for individuals to say, and certainly authors and writers and artists, their role is to challenge kind of the broader context and to help people see the discrepancies, the fact that we often adopt the system or we think of things as set in stone as if they're always there, right? But just as you said, Martin Luther King was not always celebrated. When you were talking about the um, hate group labeling, I also thought of, I guess in European context, the Bobby Sands and the Irish Liberation uh, Coalition, the group, essentially that felt that the Irish were oppressed under the British rule and, you know, the hunger strikes in Northern Ireland. They were called domestic terrorists at one time. Later they're celebrated and their portraits are painted on the side of buildings and you can take tours of all the people who have fought for the Irish Liberation. Those are all real things, real people who made choices and are seen in totally different lights at the time and maybe even now. So the law literally changed. I realize it's easy for an individual writer to say, well, we should judge the law and we should reassess it. And yet, of course, we do that. That's what our legislators do every day, right? They look at our legal code and see if we can improve it and make it more aligned with what's actually happening. So. The law is not handed down. It's made in context and it's always evolving. Mm -hmm. Lydia was tapping her book called Violence Affectionately. Do you want to talk about that? Because you yeah. mentioned the subjective violence. So for those who may be interested in exploring, because I certainly haven't read it, so maybe you'll read it and you'll <laughs> tell us what Zizek says. But I have here in front of me uh, Slavoj Žižek's Violence volume, so it's the book called Violence. And here he talks about that discrepancy, why in the Western world we privilege subjective violence, so what Carlo was saying, an individual making a threat, a physical outburst of assault, for example. Those are subjective, so subjects acting upon each other. But we recognize less, we tend to make invisible more objective forms of violence. And that does include discrimination, intimidation, hate speech, violence in our policies, right? Exclusion is a form of violence, right? Because it has real implications. What is bullying if not that? Essentially that there's more to it than just one person stabbing another. There's all kinds of other levels of violence and why do we concern ourselves with one over the other. So maybe you'll read it and give us a summary because we <laughs> haven't done the work yet. I guess something else that I was thinking about, so sort of like the customer behavior thing is, libraries are really interested in moving towards like community-led and we work with the community and we want to know who's in the community. And I just have this like feeling like, let's say that there was a white supremacist group that moves into the neighborhood where I work and 
what are people going to say to me about how I should interact with that white, white supremacist group? Like, am I going to be expected to go and introduce them to the library and ask how we can help them? Or am I able to only meet with the groups who actively work against them or start a group that actively works against them in my professional duties? I see personal lines for myself being drawn Mm. that I also then have to ask, why wouldn't that be a professional line too? You know? What's interesting now that you bring it up also, if there's a difference between expectations of professional service and I guess relationship to groups versus individuals, right? Because I'm sure we have encountered over our experience individuals who may have identified as part of those groups or they actively performed hate speech. Mm -hmm. Could we have interacted with neo-Nazis, Holocaust deniers? Probably. So is there a difference between serving individuals and serving groups mm. as well, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's true. Individuals do have rights to collections and spaces. They're mm -hmm. welcome to come in, borrow, read whatever they want. Mm -hmm. But this is now moving into assembly, into service maybe for the purpose of helping them with their mission. Like, there's a difference. Yeah. There's a difference. So this idea that what we're talking about when we talk about intellectual freedom are ideas, and things that right. we find distasteful right. or uncomfortable or all of these very adjectives that are very kind of frivolous. Like it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of uh. my preference. It's a matter of offending someone where I feel like what, what we're talking about is violence in all of those different ways, whether it's physical or whether it's language or whether it's something else and it's rights it's people's rights and yes someone could then argue with me like well you need to like protect neo-nazis and stuff because they have those same rights too and i'm kind of like nazis are where i draw the line like you guys i'm not i'm not going to because supporting them will actively take that away from someone else and so it just makes no sense like it's an illogical argument right and yeah this, this idea that it's just about what i personally find offensive or There's no more consequence than that, than me opening something and being like, my word, like, what is this text? I'm so offended by it. It can be more than that. And I think that's what people are trying to tell us, mm. is that it is more than that. Well, arguably, even what we find offensive is socially influenced. Sure. Because those things have changed. Mm -hmm. They're cultural and historic. So it's, yeah, that's, that's a pretty interesting argument. You know, the, this... Pressure to serve groups that actively wish to annihilate, to do harm to other groups of society. So the pressure to feel like we have to equally serve and be present and meet their needs as well would not have existed in previous societies or non-Western groups where code of conduct of communities clearly known and enforced where I'm not sure they would even be allowed to get to that point, right? So it's a very Western and kind of liberal perspective that we've grown up in, and we, we assume that, yeah, everyone's equal and everyone has rights to exist. Everything will be peachy keen and they'll just get along. But we know that that's not true. We say that and we know that not everything is equal. And we continue to have to fight for people's equality. Even recently, there are still fast inequalities and the repercussions of those years of like legal inequalities that were put into place. So yeah, I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> In our last episode, we talked about the volume called Feminists Among Us. And I wanted to read just a couple of very short passages from Baharak Yousefi's chapter called On the Disparity Between What We Say and What We Do in Libraries. And it's interesting that, you know, diversity came up a lot in our discussion because I guess it's one of the values of our profession. It's the thing that we're supposed to champion, both in ideas and in practice. And so we know there's some issues with getting to diversity in our hiring practices, in our collections, in our services, in our programs. So Baharak Yousefi writes... 
in her chapter. In libraries, these discrepancies are increasingly less visible in our structures. We are, for example, diligent about using diversity statements in our job advertisements. They are, however, present in our infrastructure. For example, we continue to look for fit when hiring new librarians, which tends to mean more of the same, people more like us. So what to do about this? The author suggests that you can adopt several activist techniques, and these include gossip, doubling, hacking, and exaggerated <laughs> compliance. Uh, so these would be speech acts or the power of language and stories and interacting with each other. So gossip is always painted really badly, but it is a human activity that fills a need of dealing with anxiety and exchanging information. And let's face it, we're professional about hoarding information. <laughs> I'm not going to necessarily explain all of them because that's what the chapter's for. And I also appreciate, you know, the term exaggerated compliance. So essentially trying to use whatever position you have in the library world to highlight that if we are truly about diversity, like don't we say these things? So what can we do about them? And, and try to push for real actionable way to exemplify it by not contradicting, but in fact complying to the fullest degree and taking it to the fullest possible. So I guess you could look at those strategies as activism, as resistance, as trying to meaningfully take steps in the direction of living the values mm -hmm. rather than just talking about them. So I'm not convinced that, you know, four strategies will solve it all. And I don't <laughs> think the authors of this book are naive enough to say that, yeah, well, we're going to solve diversity. But it's certainly better than just even talking about, yeah, diversity is a problem, but what are you going to do? That's mm -hmm. just, this is the way things or are. Right? We that have this value, like we're good. Right. We have a statement yeah. about it. It's fine. Yeah. So th those are some Ooh. meaty things. And <laughs> I hope this has been an interesting and valuable discussion <laughs> to those who have stayed with us. I don't know that I feel better. I feel continue to feel weird and scared. But hopefully we will continue to talk about it. Yeah. And that's why I think we chose this path, this profession that... It's never easy, right? If, if it was some sort of guidebook that you memorize and do, it wouldn't be yeah, as interesting. Yeah, like doctors. No big deal. <laughs> they just learn some stuff about the body and then, you know, fulfill that Hippocratic Oath and whatever. It's all fine. <laughs> Who's going to argue with that? So, yeah, thank you for <laughs> staying with us. And if you have any ideas or suggestions, feel free to send them to us. We have a Gmail account called nolibrariansallowed at gmail.com. And you can find us on Google Play and iTunes, as well as Twitter. Thank you. Bye. Bye.